If you have your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to see what the Bible says about that question that I just asked. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we studied this together not too very long ago. We talked about the qualifications for overseers, bishops, pastors. Beginning in verse 1, it says, "...the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle." not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare, of the devil. And immediately following that, it goes into the qualifications for deacons. We won't take the time to read it, but it's a very similar list, and we looked at it at length. Now, when I read that, I think, Lord, what are you doing with me? <laughs> I can't live up to that. I'm not good enough. Mr. Phil hit the nail on the head, though. He really did. Pursuing righteousness, pursuing. Christ, am I ever going to perfectly? Is Pastor Tim ever going to perfectly? Pastor Whitman, did you ever perfectly? No, sir. The most important thing in that text of Scripture, it says an overseer must be above reproach. And that sort of encapsulizes everything else that is listed throughout the course of that text that we just looked at. Dr. Kevin Blackwell is a Southern Baptist preacher, and he wrote that without a doubt, one of the greatest needs we have in the American church is to turn around declining churches. In 2017, Tom Rainier released a new data uh, which suggests that 65% of Southern Baptist churches are either in plateau or decline. 65% of our churches. On one hand, this is much better than the often used data of 80%, which I have heard for many years. But on the other hand, 6.5 out of 10 churches are not growing While part of me feels relieved that the percentage is better than I previously thought, the reality is that we have a majority of churches that are in need of revitalization. This creates an issue for most churches. While the average pastoral tenure has increased from three and a half to six years since 1996, we still have a majority of pastors who leave a church at the most crucial stage for revitalization. There's a myriad of reasons why pastors leave churches at this stage, but the reality is that turning around a declining church is difficult and takes years, not months. This is a long game, brothers and sisters. This is not something that is going to happen overnight, nor should it happen overnight. Rainier says in the book, and the opening sentence is that pastors and their leadership are vital to churches. And that really stuck out to me as I was reading this chapter. A church without elders, a church without pastors, let's be frank, it's not a church. It's not. Point blank period, it, it cannot meet the biblical qualifications for what 
a church is and how a church is defined. Now, I want to be clear, that does not mean that we are above anyone or that we are better than anyone. We are a part of. We are a key component. Um, The body has many parts. And the role of shepherd, the role of elder, the role of pastor is a key, key component. You can't have a church without it. And so we studied First and Second Timothy and Titus last year, and we, we looked at all those qualifications about what the New Testament teaches about that office. Rainier speaks in his book about a pattern of pastoral tenure that became common as he studied the deceased churches. He said that pastors came and went at a pace of every two or three years, especially in the two decades leading to the deaths of the churches. If you have your books, turn to page... 56. 56. He shares about an email that he received from a pastor who was going through a season of struggle in his church. And about two paragraphs before the bottom of page 56, he said, the pastor began his email to me, I have been a pastor of my church for 18 months. The attendance has declined from 97 to 76 in that time. Each pastor before me was here less than three years at least the last 10 pastors. The only exception was a pastor in the late 90s who lasted almost five years. He continued, I guess I was like the rest of them. I thought I would be different. I thought my ministry would not follow the same pattern as the others. It looks like I'm wrong. The pastor search committee told me they were ready for leadership change. They were ready to move in another direction. Well, I began suggesting some small changes after I got here and all heck broke loose. I asked one of the members of the search committee why they were so resistant to change, especially since they seemed to say otherwise. He kind of shrugged and said that he didn't mean that kind of change, whatever that meant. The pastor's email concluded with little hope. I was naive to think I could change something that other pastors couldn't. I guess I'll be leaving the church soon too. For me, it's both frustration and financial. The church has shrunk to the point that they can't afford my salary, They've cut my pay once. There's no way they can support a full-time pastor. I just don't see the church making it much longer. I've never had to write an email like that, but I've known many pastors who have. It's all too frequent thing. And those types of scenarios point to a downward spiral, a death spiral in the life of a local church. Rainier goes on to mention several life stages of pastoral tenure. And there's a list of that, I believe, on the very next page, on page 58. Yes, page 58, so you can follow along as we look at them. And he talks about year one. Year one's always the great year because you're getting to know each other. Um, you know, there you really can't do a whole lot wrong unless you go in there like a bull in a china shop which thankfully uh, one of my mentors taught me not to do a long time ago. But that first year, the honeymoon year is like a blank slate. And uh, you want to believe the best about the people that God has called you to serve, and they want to believe the best about you as your pastor. And there's a willingness to overlook things that um, probably will bother you later on down the road. And then he says years two and three, conflicts and challenges. We begin to discover one another's imperfections. Rainier says that the spiritual health 
of both the pastor and the church will likely determine the severity of the conflicts and challenges. So in essence, what he's saying there is, if we're spiritually mature, we should be able to rise up above the conflicts and challenges. Amen? If we do things by the book, we should be able to overcome the obstacles that come our way. But the sad thing is, years three and the next stage, year four, that's where most pastors leave. That's where most of them are out the door and they're on their way somewhere else. Years four and five, a crossroads, he calls it, part one. And he says this is the most critical stage. If the two sides will learn to manage their relationship well, they can look forward to some of the most fruitful years of ministry that they'll have together. I've always heard in pastoral ministry that it takes seven years that a pastor needs to be prepared to stay to that seven-year mark because if he hits that seven-year mark, then the people will trust him more, they'll understand him more, they'll love him more, they'll follow him more. That's a fact that I was always taught. I don't know if it's true or not, but I was certainly with the Harvest folks for over that period of time, and I can say that after hitting that mark, it, it was just something else altogether. It was certainly more trusting of a relationship more familial of a relationship. Um, and so I understand why he begins to, to refer to these years, the four to five year mark as a crossroads. Six to 10, fruit and harvest, he calls it. And this is where we likely experience our best years. We've learned to work together. We know how one another uh, interacts and how we do things. We've learned to work through things together. We love one another. We trust one another even more. And then you go back to years 11 and beyond, he calls Crossroads Part 2. And that's when the pastor will typically decide, do I leave? Ten years is a, a pretty good pastoral tenure. Do I leave or do I stay? And I've been encouraged in recent years to see more and more pastors staying past that mark, as I believe uh, many should. And he says that at this point, the leader will need to be reinvigorated. He'll need to go through a process of self-evaluation. He'll need a fresh vision to communicate to the church. But those are the stages of pastoral tenures. Now, one thing that he makes clear in this chapter is that dying churches, one of the things you see most frequently is shorter pastoral tenures. One to two to three years. Three max, typically. He did say that there were some that reached a much longer period, but it was only because their minister was tired, he was ready to retire, and he hung on as long as he could until the church closed. But normally it's in that one to three year period. And that is, again, it's a death spiral. It's a downward march. And he says that most pastors in this case study left in the second stage, so two to three years. They experienced resistance to change. They lost hope because of the patterns and the history of the church. Cycle, repeat. Cycle, repeat. And then finally shut the doors. Turn to page 60. Page 60. And you see the heading, The Exceptions. He writes that four of the deceased churches had long-term pastorates near or at the end of their lives. They were clearly an exception to the patterns of the other churches. Why? The pastor made the decision to adopt the attitude 
of the recalcitrant members. There was no attempt to lead toward change. There was no attempt to have an outward focus. There was no attempt to become more like the community in which the church was located. These pastors took the paths of least resistance. They likely knew the church was headed toward demise or at least toward severe decline. Decline and death, he says, was the preferable option towards conflict. They were content to just get along until they couldn't get along anymore. Bottom line, these churches died. All 14 of them that he did this case study on. As I was studying this week, I came across some really helpful information that I want to relay to you this evening. And there are several scriptures there listed at the top of your handout beginning with Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 19. Paul says this, that he was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. And that was going on while he was ministering to the church at Ephesus, while he was helping to establish that local body and build up the local church there, he says, serving with all humility, with tears and trials. 1 Corinthians 4 and 16. Uh, These next several verses are very, very similar, so don't feel the need necessarily to turn there. But Paul urges the church at Corinth to be imitators of me, he says. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, he says the same thing, but he adds something to it. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17, he says the same thing again. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then finally, 1 Peter 5 and verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Too many in pastoral ministry and vocational ministry, they try to exalt themselves. And some of them are successful at it. I mean, Joel Osteen's done a wonderful job of it. <laughs> I guess I need to take some lessons. I don't know. No, I... I want to follow the example that we have in Scripture, that I would be humble, that I would be worthy of imitation as Paul sought to be, and leave the exaltation to someone who can handle it far better than I can. And so I asked you a question as we began, are pastors supposed to be perfect? No, never going to happen. Ask my wife, ask Miss Joanne. Ask Miss Bertha Gay. (laughs) It's not going to happen. But we should be striving to meet the qualifications that we see in 1 Timothy 3 so that others will seek to walk after us, so that others will seek to follow in our footsteps. There's something to be said for steady faithfulness. Some of the most godly men I have ever known were not television evangelists. They never made a million dollars. Some of them pastored a group of 100 people or less for 20 and 30 years. Steady 
faithfulness day in and day out, loving the people and preaching God's Word to them. And that to me is better than anything Joel Osteen could ever do. The habits modeled by those in spiritual leadership set a pattern for people in the church. And God help us that we would be setting that pattern. Jesus said in Luke 6 and 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. But it takes time to cultivate that that faithfulness and that humility in a ministry. It's not something that just comes overnight, and it's not something, even if you are a humble leader and you are a faithful leader, it has to be seen by the congregation. It has to be seen in our daily lives and in our handling of the Word of God. And one to three years is too short of a time span for that to happen. Now, if a pastor's in gross error, get rid of him. I'm saying that about me. If I'm wrong, if I am in sin, if I have done something to violate the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, get rid of me. But don't get rid of me just because I preached a sermon you didn't like. Or we sang a song that you didn't like. Or you didn't like something I did that was meaningless in the grand scheme of things. And I'd say the same thing to any pastors that would hear me. Don't leave just because there's that one old lady who criticizes you constantly. Don't leave just because they don't like your sermons. Don't leave just because they don't like the book that you're teaching on Wednesday nights. Be faithful. Stay. Minister. There's something to be said for steady faithfulness. And so as we close this portion this evening, I want to ask you a favor. I want to ask you to pray for me. I have been so blessed this week. I really have. Because two or three of you guys have sent me texts or told me in person, I am praying for you this week. And that means more to me than anything you can say or any card you could write to know that you're praying for me. Another pastor just yesterday, he told me it was Kevin, Kevin Phillips. He said, I pray for you every day. And I knew he meant it. And man, that... That means more to me. And I want to ask you to do that. But I want to ask you to be specific. I want to ask you to pray that I'll be faithful. I want to ask you to pray 1 Timothy chapter 3 over me and over Pastor Tim and over those who serve this church. That we will be faithful to the Word of God. That we will be faithful to the flock. And that we will be faithful to stay until God would have us go. We're going to read the prayerful commitment in just a minute, but there was another article that popped up in my, my Google as I was researching this week. And it was an article by Tom Rainier. And it was entitled, The Dangerous Third Year of Pastoral Tenure. The Dangerous Third Year. Now, I'm getting pretty close to hitting two officially, but if you count the one year that we were kind of meeting together, I mean, it, so we're in the two to three year range, however you look at it. But he shares, uh, and I'll be glad to share the article with you if you'd like to read the whole thing, but he ends it with possible ways to address the third year. And I just want to share this with you tonight as a practical um, advice for you. He says, here's a few ways to address that dangerous third year of a pastor's ministry. Have an awareness of the possibility of a third year letdown. It is not unusual and you are not alone. 
Be prepared for the down season to last a while. It's not unusual for this to happen. Dropout rates for pastors in the years four and five are pretty high as well. Surround the pastor with prayer. Be intentional about praying for the pastor's emotional, physical, and spiritual strength during this season. And I would say pray for my home. Pray for my marriage. Pray for my my family. This is keep the church outwardly focused as much as possible. I am so thankful to see some things happening in that regard. I can't tell you how excited that makes me as a pastor. It says churches that are focused inwardly tend to be more critical and more dissatisfied. Be aware that pastors who make it through these seasons are usually stronger on the other side and the churches are as well. Church members need to be highly intentional about encouraging the pastor and the pastor's family. While they always need encouragement, they really need it during this season. And he closes by saying the third year of a pastoral tenure does not necessarily have to be dangerous, but it is many times. Now, I'm not saying all that tonight because I'm thinking about leaving because I'm not. (laughs) I think I've told you guys many, many times that I'm committed here. Um, I'm not trying to climb any ladder and jump to a larger church. I don't want to move to another town because this is my home. I live here. So if y'all get rid of me, you still have to see me around town anyways, okay? So let's be faithful together. I'll be stuck with y'all if y'all be stuck with me. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for good, godly Christian men who, who write books like this so that we can see this these autopsies of churches that failed. And hopefully we can commit ourselves to things that will prevent that in this local body. I think about our future upcoming Bible studies, and I I just ran across it today, and I, I believe you put it in my path, Lord. Not only has He written the autopsy of a deceased church, but He's written the anatomy of a revived church. And Lord, I pray that you will give us the tools that we need to be a revived church. Not for our own kingdom, not for our own glory, but for your glory, God. It's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray and ask these things God's people said. Amen and amen. Pineview gathers for worship each Sunday beginning at 9.30 a.m. for morning prayer. Sunday school classes for all ages begin at 9.45 followed by our worship gathering at 11 a.m. We also meet each Wednesday night for Bible study and prayer at 7 p.m. in our church fellowship hall. We are located at 3357 U.S. Highway 117 North in Goldsboro, North Carolina. We are a Southern Baptist congregation dedicated to expository preaching and biblical worship. We invite you to join us next Sunday. If you would like more information about Pineview Baptist Church, we invite you to follow us on social media. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Pineview Baptist Goldsboro. There you will find information about our service times, upcoming events, directions to our church, and videos of our Sunday services.